Everybody loves a good origin story. It's fun to look back and see how something small became something big. For example, listen to this origin story. In the summer of 1776, delegates from each of the 13 colonies met in the city of Philadelphia. They decided the time had come to sever their connection to England. And for the cause of freedom, these delegates issued a Declaration of Independence. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It's the origin story of the United States. Here's another one. In 1975, two 20-year-olds, both named Steve, set up shop in a garage and began working on the prototype of a new personal computer. To raise the money to start this venture, Steve Jobs sold his Volkswagen microbus, and Steve Wozniak sold his Hewlett-Packard calculator. So what company are we talking about there? That's the origin story of Apple computers. Okay, last one. After witnessing the murder of his parents, a young Bruce Wayne swore vengeance against criminals. Bruce trained himself physically and intellectually and chose a bat-inspired persona to fight crime. The origin story of Batman. I remember the first time I heard that one as a kid. It made a big impression on me. But that's the power of stories, isn't it? And today, I have a very powerful story to share with you. It's the origin story of the church. In the book of Acts, we learn how the disciples of Jesus launched a movement that eventually spread all over the world and changed history. But we already know from last week, the disciples didn't accomplish this by their own power. The Bible says they were just unschooled, ordinary men. The only reason this movement exploded was because God got involved. God's Holy Spirit gave the disciples courage and power and influence far beyond what they had on their own. Now, last week, we looked at Acts chapter 1, which is the background of this origin story. Today, we move on to chapter 2, and this is where we see the launch party of the church. Now, if you missed last week's message, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that, because we started this journey through the book of Acts, And for the moment, I'll just give you a quick summary of what we're doing here. The idea is that all of us at Plum Creek will read through the book of Acts this summer. And if you're not a part of Plum Creek, you're certainly invited to join us. But this isn't just a summer reading program. We are looking back at the early church, but we're also looking ahead to the future. You know, this has been a strange year. And we've been forced to step back and reevaluate lots of different things, including what it means to be the church. So this is the perfect time to seek God and ask him to lead us as the church moves forward. But when God leads us, he expects us to follow. So over the course of this summer, we're taking some action steps that will help us live out our faith and get involved with the work of God's kingdom. We'll have a specific challenge every week. You'll hear it in the sermon. We'll post it on our Facebook page. And if you're on our email list, you'll get it that way too. Last week's step was to form a small group of three to four people. And each of these groups will have at least one conversation every week. You talk about the action step from the previous sermon, and you just encourage each other to take the step. Now, I've got my group, and I hope you do too. If not, though, there's still time. Just reach out to two people today and you'll be good to go. If you need help finding a group, 
let us know and we'd be glad to get you connected. So having said all of that, it's time to jump into Acts chapter 2. And I'll just go ahead and read verse 1 right now. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now we need a little context here, don't we? First, what exactly was the day of Pentecost? Well, from a Christian perspective, Pentecost is when we celebrate the birthday of the church. In fact, we just passed that day on the calendar. It was May 31st. But this name actually goes further back than Christianity. Pentecost was a great Jewish feast. It was a Thanksgiving celebration of the spring harvest. Now, you might be more familiar with a different Jewish feast called Passover. But with both Pentecost and Passover, lots of Jewish people made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from faraway places. Surprisingly, though, there were more visitors at Pentecost than at Passover, simply because the weather was better for traveling. So in Acts 2 verse 1, picture Jerusalem full of people from lots of different nations and cultures. And hold that image because we'll come back to it in a minute. But look at the rest of that verse. They were all together in one place. Who is that they we're talking about here? Well, most likely we're talking about the 12 apostles. And what were they doing exactly? Well, we know that from Acts chapter 1. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he spoke to his disciples and he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. And what was that gift? It was the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's presence would fall on the disciples in a way the world had never seen. And as a matter of fact, that gift arrives in verse 2. Let's read that. It says, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Ever since Jesus left, the apostles had been sitting around, just waiting for something to happen. But right here, it happened. They heard a sound. It sounded like a strong windstorm. And then they saw this blazing fire that broke apart and landed on each person in the house. And I will admit, this whole event seems very strange. And I wish we got a more detailed explanation of what happened. But look at verse 4. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you think about that, it really makes sense. This is the day when God's Holy Spirit arrives. This is the Spirit of the God who created the universe. This God is bigger than time or space or anything we could imagine. So yeah, when the Holy Spirit shows up, we should expect something big. But we read one more detail, didn't we? The Spirit enabled the disciples to speak in other tongues. Now, what is the purpose of that? Well, if you go back to the original Greek language, this word tongues refers to foreign languages. But still, what's the point? Why would the disciples need to speak in different languages? Well, remember what we said about the Feast of Pentecost? Remember those pilgrims? Check out verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, 
because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, there's a change of scene here. Sometime after verse 1, we transitioned from a private home to a public space in the Jewish temple. And at that point, all of these visitors heard the apostles speaking, but they didn't hear them speak in the Aramaic language like you would expect. Every person in that crowd heard the words of the apostles in their own language. And we need to understand how amazing this is. The next few verses give us a list of the locations where these pilgrims came from. And instead of reading that list, I'll just show you a map. You can see Jerusalem there in the lower center, but look at how far people traveled to get there. From Italy to Northern Africa to Turkey to way out east in Persia. Now, these people were all Jewish, or at the very least, they had a great respect for the one true God. But they came from very different cultures, didn't they? There were so many different ethnicities and skin colors on that day in Jerusalem. And I love this. From the very beginning, the church will unite people from lots of different backgrounds. And in the early days of the church, followers of Jesus are almost all Jewish. But in a few chapters, we'll see the message of Jesus spread out to non-Jews or Gentiles. And God will make it clear that he wants everyone everywhere to be a part of his family. You know, after all these years, our nation still struggles with the issue of racism. This is a very tense time in our country right now. But as we move forward, we should remember this. God wants every person on earth to be a part of his family. He made every human being in his image, and he values each one of us, no matter who we are or where we came from. And as we look at the news every day, we're going to see people and we're going to see actions that make us angry. And many times that anger is justified. But remember, no matter who you see and no matter what they've done, that person is still loved by God. Jesus died for that person. He longs for that person to turn to him. So as we relate to other people, let's remember that. Anyway, back to the story. This crowd heard the apostles speak, and they were just stunned because these men came from Galilee, and that whole area was full of rednecks and hicks. So how could it be that these men were speaking in the local dialects of everyone in that crowd? Well, the listeners had two reactions to this situation. One group was just amazed, and they said, what does this mean? What's going to happen next? The other group sort of laughed at the apostles. They said, Psh, they're just drunk, that's all. But right here, it was time for Peter to speak out. Let's read what happens in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And from that point, Peter preaches the first sermon in the history of the church. And let me tell you, it was a good one. He starts out by addressing the hecklers. He says, guys, don't be ridiculous. Of course we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Come on now. But then Peter starts talking about Jesus. And since he's speaking to a Jewish crowd, he goes back to the Old Testament. He quotes a prophet named Joel. Hundreds of years earlier, Joel told of a day when the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. So by quoting Joel, Peter is saying his prophecy has been fulfilled today. 
Then a few verses later, Peter quotes King David. In Psalm 16, David said to God, My heart is glad because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your faithful one see decay. And Peter says, those words are also a prophecy. David was pointing to Jesus, specifically his resurrection from the dead. The Father did not abandon Jesus to the grave. Jesus rose again. And Peter gives all of this background because he's making an important point. He wants these people to know that their long-awaited Messiah has come. Listen to verse 36. Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, there is some good news in there, right? God has finally sent a Savior for his people. But there's also some bad news, really bad news. The Messiah came and you killed him. Now, of course, not everyone in that crowd was directly responsible for the crucifixion. A lot of them came from out of town, so they weren't around when Jesus was crucified. However, somewhere in that crowd, there were probably some people who had shouted, crucify him, just a few weeks before. For those people, it would not be fun to listen to this sermon. In a way, though, Peter's accusation applied to everyone listening that day. In fact, his accusation also applies to us. Think about it. Who actually sent Jesus to the cross? The reality is, it wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just the Jewish religious leaders. It was all of us. It was our sin. Jesus went to the cross by choice, motivated by love, to suffer the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. He paid the price of death so that we wouldn't have to. And you know, that part of the gospel is very good news. But we can't skip ahead to the good news before we deal with the bad news. Do you see what Peter is saying here? He says, all of you need to realize that you have sinned. Through your disobedience and rebellion, you have severed your relationship with God. And what you deserve is punishment. And like I said, this part of Peter's message, it applies to all of us. The gospel of Jesus is very good news, but it starts with bad news. We all love to hear a sermon that's encouraging. We all want to hear that God loves us and he has good plans for us. And that is absolutely true. But we also need to hear that our sin is a horrible offense to God. Our dishonesty and our greed and our lust, our racism, our selfish pride and every other sin. All of these things are repulsive to God. And Peter just tells it like it is. But now think about this for a second. Peter stood in front of a crowd that could very quickly turn into an angry mob. They could have turned on Peter just like the crowd that demanded the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter was in real danger here, and he knew it. But do you remember? Just a couple months earlier, Peter had been so scared in the face of danger, he denied that he even knew Jesus three different times. So here's an important question. What caused this dramatic change in Peter? I've got two answers for you. The resurrection and the Holy Spirit. Peter had seen firsthand that Jesus defeated death itself. And after that, he knew, if Jesus is on my side, I don't have to worry about anybody else. But there was also that factor of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gave Peter a boldness 
and an eloquence that he just never had before. So Peter preached the gospel with power and authority. And if that crowd turned against him, so be it. But that's not what happened. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In the end, this crowd did not get angry. They were cut to the heart. That phrase means to be pierced or stabbed. They understood what a serious crime this was. They had murdered the savior of the world. There was no way they could undo this heinous act and they couldn't imagine how they would escape God's wrath. So in desperation, they ask, brothers, what can we do? Is there any way to make this right? And that's when Peter speaks these famous words in Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I love the simplicity of that. Peter says, yes, there is a way to get back into good standing with God. It all comes down to the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who made it possible for your sins to be forgiven. And through Jesus, God offers you this amazing gift. It's the gift of grace the gift of salvation. It's the chance to be saved from the punishment of eternal death. It's the chance to receive the gift of eternal life. And Peter tells that crowd, if you want to receive this gift, you need to respond to Jesus in two important ways. Number one, repent. Now, if you look at this word in the original Greek language, repent means to change your mind. And as we see this word in other parts of scripture, it's clear that repentance starts in your head, but eventually it extends to every part of your life. Repentance plays out in the attitudes that you have and the decisions that you make. So here's a good definition of what it means to repent. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. And that helps us understand what Peter is saying. Peter says, stop running away from God change your mind, turn around and run to God. So that's one response, repentance. The other instruction Peter gives here is to be baptized. And again, if we go back to the original word for baptism, it means to be immersed or submerged in water. But what does that have to do with following Jesus? Well, there's another place in the Bible that has a great explanation of baptism. In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So here's what that means. When you are baptized, it's like you are reenacting the story of Jesus. Just like Jesus died on a cross and was buried in a tomb, a person being baptized is dying to their old life and being buried in the water. And just like Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of the grave, a person being baptized is raised up out of the water to go live a new life. It's a beautiful picture. And you know, there have been lots of questions about baptism over the years. 
But when you read this passage, it's really pretty simple, isn't it? We know from Scripture that Jesus is the one who saves us. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. But when you truly put your faith in Jesus, you do what he tells you to do. And that means you will follow Peter's instructions here in Acts chapter 2. You will repent, a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. You will also be baptized. And you know, that's exactly what happened at the end of Peter's sermon. Let's read verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Can you imagine what that looked like? There were uh, Jewish ceremonial baths all around the temple courts, and I'm sure they used all of those baths to baptize 3,000 people. This was an amazing day. This was the launch party for the church. In Acts chapter 1, there were only 120 followers of Jesus. But here in chapter 2, that number blows up into the thousands in a single day. And I'm sure it was a huge celebration. And let me tell you what, every time there's a baptism at Plum Creek, we celebrate too. We love it when someone says yes to Jesus. Some of you saw that on Thursday night. It was a small version of Acts chapter 2. Let's watch this video. So, Jordan, I'm just going to have you repeat after me. I believe, I believe that, Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of the living God and my personal Lord and Savior. My personal Lord and Savior. So awesome. Right now, Elizabeth, if you don't know, this is Elizabeth, the good friend of David. And she's going to have the privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. There it is, new life in Christ. The book of Acts is not just about the past. It's about the present and the future too. Did you notice what Peter said? The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's us. The promise stretches all the way down to us. And when you give your life to Jesus, you can be confident that your sins are forgiven. And not only that, you can be confident that God's Holy Spirit is living in you, empowering you to do more and be more than what you could ever accomplish on your own. So that's the story. But what's our action step for today? Well, for some of you watching, you know that you haven't responded to Jesus the way those 3,000 people responded on the day of Pentecost. And if you are ready to put your faith in Jesus and repent and be baptized, I want you to know we are here for you. Please reach out, go to plumcreek.org connect and let us know you wanna give your life to Jesus. We would love to have that conversation with you. But there is another action step and this is the one that applies to everyone. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. We're going to pray for people in our communities, people who need a life-changing relationship with Jesus. We want to see the Holy Spirit go to work in their lives. So here's the plan. This week's action step is to go on a neighborhood prayer walk. See what I mean? It's not difficult. You just make your way down the street and you pray for your neighbors. People you know as well as people you don't know. Pray for their hearts to be open to Jesus. 
and ask God to use you to share his love with everyone around you. Now, before I close here, I do realize that some of you live out in the country and there's a lot of space between you and your neighbors. That's okay. Maybe you can just go for a prayer drive or you could go to a different neighborhood and walk around there. Be creative. The point is to ask God to work in the hearts of people in our community and to work in our hearts as well so we can love others the way he does. So talk about this in your groups of three to four. Hold each other accountable. All of us can take this step. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of your church. And I thank you that the story continues today. Lord, I pray that we will see you work in our community. I pray that people will be open to you. They will hear your call and they will respond and your kingdom will grow for your glory. Lord, I thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.